forever. Dog. You gotta find you. And that's where, really, when they talk about a comedian, they say it takes 10 years to find your voice. And I think the actual meaning of that is it takes 10 years for you to know your own opinions. Welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless, The Big Bang Theory, or one episode of the British mystery series, Death in Paradise. Our guest this episode is Rick Overton. I met Rick a few years ago on an episode of Speechless, and we hit it off, and he is a delight to talk to. We are going to talk about Groundhog Day, Willow, Young Doctors in Love, which is a favorite of mine, Harold Ramis. We start, however, with a talk about his parents' background in jazz— uh, that goes all over the place, talks about the connection between comedy and jazz. Jonathan Winters comes up because of course he does. And also, and this will make sense in a moment, Burt Parks was the host of the Miss America pageant. Could not remember that for the life of me. Please welcome Rick Overton. Rick, God, it is, um, it, it's really exciting to talk to you about uh, the, the, the great arc that is your career but let's start at the very beginning you're from queens originally yeah four stills i was born in doctor's hospital in manhattan because that's where mom wanted to go and then we uh we moved from the bronx to brooklyn then to queens and then when queens started to get like the traffic was too much Uh my dad was a jazz guy and he were both musicians your parents right mom was a singer in a pop group there was a transitional group that was kind of going out of the Andrew sisters harmonies and into a rock harmony. So the Cordettes were one of the early groups to start taking those harmonies into rock. Your, your mom was a Cordette. Yeah. First replacement cast after one of the gals got pregnant, couldn't zip up the gown, but mom could. So in she went and took it onto the road. A lot of the recordings had been done, but not all of them. And a lot of the TV appearances had happened, but not all of them. So mom did some of the tail end of a lot of the TV appearances. Before that, she was with Ray Heatherton's The Heather Tones on the Burt Park show, black and white, early TV with yeah, live sure. commercials where the dog won't eat the food. And, you know, Burt Parks, who went on to host which show? Oh, um, right. What was ah. the show he did? Did he do. About your life was it that you know? was he about your life? No, no. Uh, Bert Parks did uh, without checking. I am no one's checking. Uh, no, no one's this. cheating. No one's cheating. This. Damn it! All right, we, it, we'll it. cut. We'll cut the big pauses. But um, <laughs> did Bert Parks? He didn't host the dating game. Did he host the newlywed game. I don't know about that. I don't think so. I think I'm a little beyond his time. He's an early. He's a Kind of in the black and white kinoscope world with the hot yeah, spots no, of still... sweat that would leave acid trails along the screen. Right. Oh my God. So, so was there music in your house? Uh, yes. Pretty much all the time. My dad was an arranger. He arranged for Thelonious Monk. If you ever see the this, the documentary called The Jazz Loft, that's yeah. my dad's loft. That was what? his from from the year of my birth, fifty four to nineteen sixty four. One year after my brother's birth was the transitional time of taking a new sound and codifying it, making, solidifying it into a, a style, bebop. So they were yes. inventing bebop at the, at the jazz loft. So if you want to see where it all came from, you'll, 
you'll watch really early incarnations of things being experimented with there. It's great. And, and, and listen to it. And that's uh, and the movie coming up, Minamata, is about David X. Young. And that's the guy who owned the building and best friends of my dad. Does somebody play your dad in the movie? I was wondering about that. And so they say there might be some amalgamistic characters okay. that, you know, you'll see a, a hint of, you know, okay. let your imagination take it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, was there a moment as you were getting into comedy where you thought, oh, man, this is like jazz? Yeah, absolutely. My dad loved Jonathan Winters. Oh, yeah, sure. Sure. And so I did. And Peter Sellers, another kind of, you know, goons, loosey goosey, play around guy a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And so. I loved the because dad loved improv and he loved comedy. But the, there's the thing about being a jazz guy is you got to be you got to be cool to be a jazz guy. And cool means showing no vulnerability whatsoever. And that's and where comedy lives. All comedy lives in vulnerability. That's right. So there are opposing sides to this thing. And so I'm wondering if he wasn't subconsciously kind of, you know, planting the seed in me to see if there was and it turned out he nailed it because i'm yes. happy i won't say he nailed it because i'm a comedy star but he nailed it for what made me happy and dads don't always plant the happy seed in your head you know but this Bad. time he he crushed it this time it was just great great shot that's amazing the yeah that you look at like that there's that amazing uh footage of winters on jack parr with just a stick the stick um, you guys get on YouTube and look at Jonathan Winters and imagine a time when when network people are going, what do, what do you mean? You're just going to we're just going to let him improvise with without anything that I get to check first. That's right. Why? Because yeah. it's Jonathan Winters is why you don't tell Jonathan what to do. You allot space and then leave some more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is. It's an amazing chunk of six or seven minutes of of footage from yeah. the early the the second incarnation of the tonight show post steve allen pre johnny carson and yeah. it's basically it, to continue our metaphor and strain it to its breaking point the the stick is the is the melody and and he's just riffing around that oh i love that that's right? great that's kind of what's oh, happening right it's, yeah, it's like this it's one thing melody. and like variations on this one thing that's my favorite. I, I, I'm not in this for the applause, but I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> That's great. It's like the melody. And because I always try to look for a musical comparison to it. Yeah. That's boom. That's great. Uh, it's it's a melody and you get to riff off, off of the melody. And it's, I think that's the same with a movie pl part when you're, you know, watching Steve Carell go. Yeah. On sure. The Office, what takes in between and stuff like that. You, you can see what had had the potential to have been written in its its cleanliness and then there's that other thing that just kind of happens just there's no way you type that there's no typing of that that's you a lot space for and you get someone you can trust to do it so did you get started in <clears throat> improv first did you start doing stand-up first what what brought you on stage initially uh, just tell tell a joke and do a bit that sound. I was doing a Jonathan Winters joke or a bit, you know. You know, from whatever I saw on you know Johnny or something like that. Whenever I saw him play and I see the moves a little bit, yeah. you know, loosen up. So interestingly, 
I'm talking about a life of improv by being absolutely dedicatedly influenced by uh, certain things. But you got it. It's like you got to copy your parents a little bit when you're learning to walk. But then you, you don't need your parents there the whole time you're walking the rest of your life. Then you can do different things with walking, but you kind of need a foundational example to start with. Well, no, I mean, I don't, I, I will absolutely beat this metaphor to death, but, you know, Coltrane listens <laughs> to Charlie Parker and then he goes, oh, well, I'm going to try that and then I'll go even further with it. And I, I think, you know, influence is, uh, is not the same thing as Xeroxing. I think it's important to draw that, that distinction there. It'll start looking like the other once you get your, your sea legs and you know the walk of the ship, you'll start to change out of it and you'll have the confidence to not just sound like exactly like me because at first you're a kid and you, you have an example of doing a copied thing that worked and your friends laugh and go oh copied things yeah but you don't want to stay there right you got to find you and that's where really when they talk about a comedian they say it takes 10 years to find your voice and i think the actual meaning of that is it takes 10 years for you to know your own opinions. That's when you start walking differently through life. Hmm. Your walk Let's elaborate, Let's elaborate on that a little bit. What do you mean by knowing your own uh, opinions? Well, first off, when do you, when do you, how old are you when you start getting up on stage with any regularity? Regularity. I was in my late teens. Okay. I was in a couple of comedy teams. Okay. We were even doing school assemblies to get laughs, you know? Wow. This is Overton and Pastor. Yeah. Dwight okay. Morrow High School. Travolta went to our school. I went to school with Travolta. Oh, amazing. John, John, not Joey. He's an older man. Understood. But, uh, yeah. I, yeah. I figured you would have, if, if you, you only need to modify if it's, if it's Joey or Ellen. <laughs> yeah. Joey's a little older. But my year, my, he's my graduating year, 72. Uh, he didn't graduate because he was, he, he bugged out to do Greece. He was yeah, busy right. being famous. He's already working. So, uh, but I was in flying school with him. I took flying lessons with him. What? With, with Ms. Patton, one of the early women's air corps World War II heroines, you know? And she I feel, okay. taught I honestly, aviation at Dwight Morrow. Okay, I honestly, that's a whole separate podcast that we might actually host at some point. Um, <laughs> we got to get John. Got to get John to help. Let's out. let's stay on track. Um, All right. Uh, okay, so you you you're doing school assemblies for laughs, and at what point you're like, oh, let's take this out of the building. Let's take this off campus. Watching TV, okay. watching TV, and going, I, I look, schools. This is this finite place to try it. Right, you're gonna get, and not every opportunity when you're there is one to do it. Mm -hmm. A lot of reasons why you found your little shots, but if you got a taste, come on, man, you know what that tastes like. You're not gonna satisfy yourself with whatever someone's schedule is. You're gonna mm -hmm. want more, and you're gonna invent how to get more. Is it an addiction? Is getting laughter? They say it is addictive laughter. Whatever you know, I. I I think it's one of the healthier ones. Yeah, as addictions go, I mean, you know, we, yeah. we put things in the order that they're killing us, and I think going for laughs is uh, is uh, is not a terrible way to get high. No, no, doctors say it's good for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when does it start become? Well, first off, here here's a, a larger question. What I find really interesting about about the the Rick Overton resume is there are a lot of standups 
um, from your generation who were working the clubs in the 70s and the 80s who did not transition successfully to regular acting work yeah. for whatever reason. And good people like um, Kip uh, Adada. Adada, Kip Adada, um, you know, Stephen Wright never quite got a, he had a very, very specific brand, I'll grant you, but, but there were some very, very good people coming up around that time who did not make the transition into acting. When was acting something that you thought you could actually maybe do for a living? Well, my dad loved Jonathan Winters and he also loved Peter Sellers. Okay. And Peter Sellers made me want to do acting. Really interesting. Like anything, like was it uh, was it Strange Love? Was it just the whole thing? It, it was Clouseau. It was uh, I was I really wanted to do voices after that, you know? Yeah, sure. Kato did not attack me. I have the groceries, don't you know? Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know he had a hero too. Every hero has a hero. Yeah. Do you do you know why Clouseau speaks like this with such a nasal sound? I do not, actually. That is because a certain other actor that Peter had worked with earlier had also a very nasal sound when he spoke. Uh, he has gone on to do some very famous science fiction characters. Alec Guinness? Yeah, that was okay. his hero. Oh, interesting. And so that's why he that, sounds that, by like by the way, is built off the strength of your impression. Um, oh, thank uh, you. I was like, that's, that's, a, that's a solid Obi-Wan right there. I, I get it. Well, yeah, hello, Lucasfilm. Um, so he that's interesting so he the people it's funny like even gen xers who should know better right you know alec guinness's career starts in 77 but he was a comedy guy in those yeah, ealing in those the ealing Ealings, comedies man. yeah, yeah the, like uh if you if you've got like an hour and 20 minutes there's a movie called the lavender hill mob yes that is the quickest heist movie you're ever gonna watch and it is a delight. It is. It was one of those movies that, like, I want to say, my mom made me stay up and watch on on late night TV one time. It was on PBS, and it is again. It's a quick viewing, and it's really fun. And it's a and, sweet, sweet film. Yeah, and Guinness and is great. He's so good as the character that he disappears into that other guy, mm -hmm. and you love it, and you know it's a character. But yeah, yeah, don't mess with it. Don't tell, don't tell him to change the thing. I just want to see more of this thing I recognize that he is doing. It's that's a separate form when you can be so good that he goes, yeah, he's doing it, but don't touch. Right, right. He well, he's and there's also um uh for his real versatility, Kind Hearts and Coronets is the one yeah. you can watch um for uh because he plays several different roles in there with and Peter um, noticed that Peter noticed Peter's that and said taking oh, that's, notes. Okay. And he brought those notes to Stanley well, after okay. the healing when he played a couple of characters in uh Mouse that Roared. Oh, right. Castle, yeah, of course. Rocket Castle, right? Yeah. And he, he's the queen and he's, you know, but that was all because he's got Alex. Is, he's going to his agent, man, going, hey, come on, Alex doing this. You got to give me some of that. This is what I do. That's incredible. Um, he was allegedly supposed to play in Strangelove. Sellers was supposed, supposed to play the Slim Pickens role again. Yes. Rick is waving <laughs> his invisible cowboy hat as we speak to, uh, uh, to beat me to the punch. Um, but apparently there's some sort of injury that kept him out of doing that. Yeah, his leg, it, it broke his leg or something like that. And yeah. Slim does have to get up and kind of hobble around inside the, uh, the cockpit there. The, the literal Bombay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, the, the president can just sit there a little bit, you know, Merkin president, Meyer Merkin. Demetria. 
I don't think it's fair for you to say that you're any sorrier than we are. I think we're both equally as sorry, Dimitri. Just saw it a few years ago on the big screen at the Arclight with an audience. It it still plays great in front of an audience. It's still funny. It's still terrifying. Um, and it's so, I mean, you know, it's it's Kubrick, so of course it is, but it really is striking how beautifully shot it is. It, 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 like it's so the framing is so specific. life in a master life in a master yeah really it really is life in a master and, and one of the one of the maybe the only and it's a beautiful whoopsie in the film you know where it is right no which one are you talking about at the end when he's starting to improvise peter's starting to he's talking and the nazi hands wheeling him away from them you know yeah yeah <laughs> yeah where he's fighting with his hand yeah putting the hand down like that and death watch russian dude starts oh, yeah. going oh he breaks <laughs> yes oh, amazing. and no one saw it because everyone was looking at peter yeah i and don't know how you into would... the film they didn't uh, that's <laughs> incredible i don't know how you I've, I've seen that movie half a dozen times i've never once noticed that that's incredible it's a tiny little thing but uh i love that in this movie they allowed mistakes to be the shot, you know, like when yeah. George C. Scott boom, goes down and comes right back up again. Yeah, yeah. He takes a spill and pops right back up. Staten Keck, oh, oh, what a great mistake, you know. And someone well, who was the... so known for his absolute control of everything would still go, yeah, but still, you know, yeah. that has to go in. Yeah, knowing, knowing when to relinquish control, I think, is, right. is the hardest thing. Let's talk directors for a moment. You, I, I, is Young Doctors in Love your first film credit? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is an astonishing piece of work. I watched it last night for the first time in years. Isn't that a great it, spoof? It's so silly. It's I loved <laughs> it when it came out. I yeah. loved that movie. Oh, and me I too. actually, it was one of the first, believe it or not, it was one of the first screenplays that I ever read. I found a copy in a store. It was like, oh, I want this book. I want to see how this works. So it was honestly goodness one of the first screenplays that I actually looked at and it's like, oh, this is how stage directions work. This is how, you know, camera directions but, work. Fascinating. Yeah, good. That's a good example. Um, Gary um, Marshall's and, first film too, did you know? I did. I did. And it's so interesting because it's, it's you, trying to be uh, rest in peace. Uh, there's a few rest in pieces uh, to talk oh, about yeah. in that movie, but Harry but, Dean, Harry Dean, Taylor Negron. There's um, there's some amazing, amazing people in that movie who who we have since lost. But it's it's interesting. It's it's for for the uninitiated. It's it's basically airplane for soap operas. Right. It is a uh, it is a Zucker, right down the middle Zucker Brothers style. Yeah. Madcap uh, uh, film and TV style soap opera parody. And as such. It's just a joke a minute and they don't all land, but the ones that do land are fantastic, but where it really shines and shines in some ways more remarkably than Airplane does is the cast. Because we have mentioned the people we have lost, 
but the film also has Dabney Coleman. I'd forgotten Dabney Coleman was in it. I'd forgotten Saul Rubinek was in it. Saul's I, fantastic. He's so great in it. Um, I remembered Sean Young. I remembered uh, Michael McKean in what is likely his only romantic lead. You've got um, uh, Hector Elizondo is Hector's in it. Hector's wonderful. Pamela Reed is in it. It's yeah. this insane. I mean, for someone who hosts this particular podcast, it's pornography for me. I just I can't get enough of that movie. What was it like being on that set? Was it just Rick City was, or was you know, I was uh, you know I was uh, kind of new to movies. I did a little I did a little indie thing back in New York with a guy, and they brought us in to shoot. There was not anything that went anywhere, so it's the first thing that really someone would see. Uh, so I had a little experience with knowing where you stand and what you do, but a lot of it was just whoa, just trying to be cool, just trying to you know cool your way through it. Yeah, and be be funny where you're supposed to be. Don't overdo it where you're not supposed to overdo it. But see if there's a place to play, and there were places to play. And so the I want to do that thing with the helium in my voice and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm older. I can't do it the same. But at the time, they said that's fun. Just put that in. So let me put it in. Uh, goofing with the, uh, you know, they would when there's physical bits when Gary's trying to get the phone back on the hook or something right, like that. Right, I mean, right, You yeah. know, that's some of that is just roll letting Michael Richards just go a little longer in the take and see what yeah. there is to call back on that, you know, Michael things Richards, like that. Patrick McNee, it just goes on and on. It's in every frame in the first half hour. You're like, holy shit, they're in this? What? Um, was it... So you're not yet 30, I think, when you do this, this movie. You're a kid and you can kind of see... Because you're playing, you know, it's a it's a group of interns in their first year at a at a at a fictional hospital in a big city that is um a uh, an old hotel near MacArthur Park. I was I've <laughs> absolutely shot in that building, um, but there's this um, there's this wide eyed enthusiasm that your character has, and I put it in quote marks because I wonder how Thurman much of that flicker. is. Thurman yeah. Flicker, yeah, Thurman Flicker from the Midwest, sort of far, Midwest golly gosh guy you know yeah yeah and but he was weird at the same time and so i was just kind of in a balancing act to get the weird part into you know and not walk into the territory of taylor's weirdness which was the drug dealer right dance guy but i'll tell you there was a transformative moment for me watching taylor's work in the film it was his unreal confidence when he's showing pam the dance moves in the hallway it's oh a box that's incredible step. Uh -huh. it's a box step and i'd like to show it to you now and his body just dropped into it with such scene-filling perfection with her. And I went, oh, you, you can do that, huh? Oh, yeah. Huh. Okay. He had, if you Google Taylor well, Nevin, I, if you don't know who we're I'll talking about. Because I saw that moment. That's what triggered it in my head. His, Not his, all the movies I've seen before, because I sure. wasn't there watching the person really do it. And that makes all the difference in the world. No, when you when you watch the magic up close like that, which is why yeah. I always encourage people to stick around if they can. It's harder now with COVID, but it, it's if you can stick around and watch when you're not working. So you can just watch with with, you know, the pressure off you and see what other people are doing and and <laughs> and see the. um the, there's a certain amount of boldness just to walk on set and to think that anyone has a right to put a camera on you at all takes a certain amount of courage, but there's a bravado in Taylor Negron's work. Did you know him from stand-up? Yeah, I knew him from stand-up, 
but it was also his first movie. Yeah. He hadn't done Fast Times yet. He's Mr. Pizza Guy in Fast Times. I think that's after. Is it so before? You, no, you might. I, I'm not sure. I don't have it in front of me. I won't. I won't. Um, this is uh, eighty-two. They're probably around the same time. We're shooting time. this in eighty-two. Oh no, Young it might be around there. Like yeah. it's certainly is, it's certainly his first big it's role. It's like the beginning just... of the eighties. That's like the first big burst yeah. in. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's a um, it's an amazing, uh, amazingly fun piece of work. Let's um, move forward a little bit to Willow, um, where you worked with um, you worked with a friend of the show, Kevin Pollack, um, and you worked with Ron Howard. But, but did you work with anybody else? All your stuff appears to be green screened. I was blue. They wasn't green yet. They didn't even have green yet. They what were still mean? working with blue, like the weatherman whose eyes you could see Cincinnati. No, I can right. see Cincinnati in your eyes. <laughs> That's um, so it's all blue screen stuff. But did, did you shoot that all in, in California or did you get to go to Wales or New Zealand or any place? They cool? wouldn't have needed us there because that was principal. Yeah. And we are we spend our lives uh, getting redabbed with brown ink for leopard spots and i get uh -huh. my wig sweat re-glued on uh -huh. my head for spiky head and kevin gets his rat head put back on and we right. were at video village looking at a winky dink draw over the plastic to show where a tree will be while we're walking through it in the playback see how you went through the root of the tree and you didn't jump over oh yeah, yeah, yeah thanks and you gotta just feel with your feet where the x of tape is so does improv help with something like that? It helped with covering for mistakes with it. I'll tell you okay. that. Because okay. <laughs> it's tricky because Mad Mardigan's up this way, but we can't look down for where we got to stand. And there's all these objects that won't be there yet. And sometimes with Ultimat, they'll put big foam blocks in on a roughly the thing to avoid, you know? Oh, and yeah, they'll sure, clean sure. it up when you get to the actual post. But... Uh, Sometimes we just had to walk out on that cold stage. It was the same place where they shot the same stage where they shot Tucker, where they were building the Tuckers in San Rafael area. Oh, okay. Northern Cal near ILM. Everything we did was near ILM. Oh, all right. Yes, Completely okay. five weeks straight, sometimes five, seven days a week, five weeks straight. Tucker's the uh, Francis Ford Coppola movie with Jeff Bridges as the independent car designer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they the, cleaned it um, out and let us do special effects and stunts where we're running up the tree and jumping down on the phone. Sometimes it was the stunt guys, and sometimes it'd be me and Kevin, well, you know, running through the woodlands with our guys. Oh my god, comedy guys doing stunts! Terrifying idea. Oh, we had a fun thing. We did the we did one of the first funny behind the scenes gag behind the scenes thing. Really, there was a separate whole scene with us sitting around. Kevin and I came up with a thing where we're sitting. Well, George is so cheap, he's putting us up in this, and we built a Barbie dream house, and he splices us in with the mats us in, so we're sitting on folding chairs, and he goes, yeah, but the furniture's hard, the doors don't close right, I, I feel like there's no privacy, people are walking by dropping candy wrappers, like, hey, watch where you're walking, you know. So, like, where did you think that was going to end up? DVDs don't exist yet. Where did you, who you, did you think was going to see that? <laughs> I was hoping maybe someone would play it as a promotional. Oh, great. Okay. You okay. know, like E.T. Yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. Back then, you know. I'm sure I'm sure there's a Blu-ray uh, where you can find that. I'm, I'm I think positive. that's where. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm I remember sure it ended up eventually. The cassettes would sometimes have a separate cassette 
or a thing yeah, at the once end. In a, you know? Once in a great while, or they'd put it at the end of the credits. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I would I would watch it VHS uh, all the way to the absolute end. Yeah. What was um, Howard was still pretty green himself as a director. This was only his third movie or so. Well, he, um, yeah, no, I see. I think he did the, what did see? It was the, there's Splash. There's um, there's the the Hot Rod movie. Uh, oh, that's anyway. right. He directed, yeah, that's yeah. Right. So I, I, he seemed like he knew exactly what he was doing because certainly he knew his way since he was a kid. He just wasn't always doing it. He was watching it. Right, right. But he saw how it was done, and everyone always talk uh, talks about his generosity to share what he knows as a director, and I think that was very healthily instilled into him. Oh, that's neat. That's he nice would tell. He told me a great note. He says, "You want to know about editing? You want to know a great trick? Watch a movie with the sound off and keep a timer and click how long each cut is. And as soon as it cuts away for any reason, click again, and you'll see it's in microseconds sometimes." Yeah, yeah. That's that, you know, um, Soderbergh put a cut of Raiders of the Lost Ark online that has the sound dropped out. And it's in black and white. So all you do is focus on composition and uh, timing. Um, and he put it up there in defiance of Paramount, like basically just slapping the gauntlet in Paramount's face. Um, <laughs> but um, last I checked, it was still up. And it is this fascinating, it's basically his sort of love letter to Spielberg about, about editing and shot composition. Um, yeah. And how, especially that movie where, you know, there's build, 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 climax, lawn take, lawn take, build, 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 build. You know, it, it's a, it's kind of sexually edited in a way that is, oh. uh, is, is, uh, just corresponds to what you're, you're saying about Howard. Um, were you guys, yeah. were you and Pollock given a fair amount of freedom to screw around on that thing? It looks like at you times, were. At yeah. times, at times, rat spirit, you're just a better rat dream. And, you know, yeah. Uh, there would be within the confines of what had to be conveyed within the scene, a, a rewording here and there, a poke, a jab, a why you, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever shtick we could come up with. So, was, so you had like certain beats you had to, it was basically like doing, um, uh, curb your enthusiasm in Middle Earth. You had like certain beats you had to hit, yeah, try to get us here before the end of the day, you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, it's a, it's such a sweet movie willow and um and it's so interesting and and funny the way it plays with literally plays with perspective because it's a cast of predominantly little people and then you guys have been shrunk down to be people who are even littler than the little people right and it's this very sort of compassionate uh view of people's differences without hitting you over the head about it it's a lovely film that was so once again Ron was ahead of his time. Yeah. Because now the film would be embraced open arms. Yeah. Even though it was a little uncomfortable for America to see a little person as a lead, which I think we need to grow the hell up. Oh, God. That's ridiculous. Warwick is a comic master. Oh, he's great. He's he's magnificent. And he's great at everything he does. And let's just get over that and embrace the star. Warwick Davis, you know, so. I absolutely uh, agree. Um, and that's why now I think there's going to be a series and I hope all wonderful things come from it. You know, and people said, do you think they'll bring us back? I said, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the lifespan. Maybe we're like a chihuahua. We don't go that long. <laughs> I have no idea. 
<laughs> you know the way man, get a good Mandel's, 14 years out of him and then you got to put him down honestly that's you know, know. <laughs> it's not fair to let a brownie live past that they're not happy they're only sticking they're sticking around because they think they're making you happy you know <laughs> you got to look at the quality of life for kevin pollock and rick Overton, that's I think, right you don't want us going with that stroller thing with the legs you know you got you can't keep me on the carpet <laughs> Can we um let's talk let's go a couple of years ahead and talk about Groundhog Day, um, which is another one of your I mean it's technically Pennsylvania, but one of your Midwestern nice characters um that you play, even though you're defiantly northeast, you're as northeast as they come, you're Queens and Jersey, but yeah. you you do have this sort of this, especially having watched a lot of your work in a short amount of time there is this sort of uh, wide-eyed charm to taking in the world, um, even when the world is incredibly repetitive. What I love about the stuff that you do with Rick Dukeman, rest in peace, is, um, is it sets up all of act two. It, it just gets us into the fun part of the movie where he realizes he can live without consequence for a while. And that covers him for what appears to be actually a couple of years. <laughs> Oh, it's, there's speculation. There's been college courses discussed about how many eons might have gone into just the piano part. Uh, yeah, it, well, people no, always use no the piano part. No, I don't or any of that. You know? People always <laughs> cite the piano, like, to get that good, to get Years. that good, it would take X amount of time. And that's always, like, the benchmark they use. But, so you've got these scenes. Did you have an idea that the movie which was well received when it came out but has grown into an iconic piece of work since did you have an idea that it was going to be that that important well i don't know if anyone could say that part but we knew it was going to be great yeah. we knew this was different from a lot of other things and right. we knew it was amazing had you worked with murray before no no just a fan before that yeah it's the I first have... time we really met I've heard I had met thing. the other SNL people. He's the only other SNL guy I didn't meet. I knew oh, really? Dan. I knew through Lorraine Newman and stuff like that. And because I also auditioned for SNL in my comedy team early on. And then again, later on. But uh, so I met a lot of the SNL people. I will absolutely. We will get to those SNL stories in a moment. Um, uh, what um, I've heard very mixed things about how Murray is to work with. And I don't need anyone to talk shit on the podcast, but did you find him engaging, amenable to work with? Yeah, you had a good time. Okay. He gave me the flapjacks line. He did? Yeah, that's his riff, man. I came up with the drunk shtick that, like, I can, I can drive, I can open the, whoop, the legs go out. We were coming up with the physical, and, the, and I yeah. came up with, I have to throw up. Yeah. And so I'm always on the verge of throwing up while I'm talking to you. And yeah. uh, when Dukeman was the more solid, you know, just it looks like he can it hold like it, it a little bit more. He holds too. his liquor way better than me. That's right. Yeah. And so that's this team going on the frickin' yeah. frack, you know? Yeah, sure. Uh, but he and... gave you the uh, the the flapjacks line. Yeah. When he when he buried breakfast fact. for the cops. So he said, "How about how about who can go for some flapjacks?" Who today is the flat guys right now? You know, like that. So that's 
was great. I, I came up with how to do it, but he threw the line to me. You know, credit where due. He shit. That's a he, that's a generous that's, actor who will give somebody else. He's a second city guy. Well, yeah, and that's so the is thing. Harold. And that's they got that. It's about making it work. It's about the team. Teamwork. Yeah. So what? So I, I've had people talk about Ramos on the podcast before too, and like what in a wonderfully collaborative set he would run. Did you find that to be the case? Every time I worked with him again on uh, year one. Yes, of course. Yeah, we had Xander Berkeley on uh, recently, and he spoke very highly of his time on uh, on year one, um, which uh, I think I, was at, was Ramos's last film. Is that right? I think it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, huge loss, huge, huge loss. I, I literally remember where I was when I found out Harold Ramis had passed. It's just, we're, it's, we it's were pals. It was just devastating. His spirit on that set, man. Yeah. But he just, even when things are going wrong, he didn't go one of those, oh my God things. And everybody's got an added panic because now our director is also, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, he was always chill. He had a guitar with him on his little travel guitars. Oh, nice. And he's always into music and he was, he's cool. He's like an improviser, you know, he's an yeah. improviser who also does the wonderful masterpiece directing. And there are times when you got to stick right to those words and your only improv is how you do these perfectly. Right. That's only, your improv. Your only improv is how you do this perfectly. That's uh, that is, that is amazing. Um, you shot that in Wisconsin. That was shot in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Illinois, Illinois. I knew it was somewhere in the And Midwest. Woodstock. Woodstock, Illinois. Okay. And those okay. are the two places because it turns out it wasn't going to work in the real town. No, of course not. Probably wasn't. wasn't Tony, it there wasn't set up right. And it was also the wrong time of year. And uh, some of the trees they had to reflock with snow because it was warming up. Oh, wow. And we were losing the end of winter and they brought a snow. You know, it's like uh, get, we'll get, they got around it. It was, it's a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film. Lucky, and I, I, wonderful break for me. I just watched it. Um, all the drive-ins stayed open during the pandemic around Southern California. And um, in an incredible feat of really reading the room, the Mission Tiki played uh, Groundhog Day in April when we'd all been on lockdown for about six weeks. And mm. we're like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go see Groundhog Day. That's, that's mm. This is the time. This is the time. So the whole family oh, yeah. went. It was, it was a delightful as ever how long were you there for because it's it, it looks like there's a part of me that looks at that and goes well they could have shot that all in one day or they had to really spread it out it's hard to tell a lot of times it was retake retake yeah because you it's the thing about getting everybody in this all the extras to be in the right place on the right day you don't want to keep bringing them back and paying for that when you don't need them so you get when you're making a movie uh financial constraints often shoot things that completely out of order because everyone's in one place for one price for right. one day or two days or whatever. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. So it was, it was, um, it was but a lot of it went sequentially, but not all. No. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I want to, um, I want to bounce over to a credit I had forgotten about. Um, well, actually, no, hang on. We'll get to the, this in a moment. You would mention, I always ask my guests about the job that got away, and you just mentioned two auditions for SNL. Mm -hmm. And one you said was for was for the original for the 75 cast. Yeah, see, they were looking for a team. <laughs> I see. And I was did, in did you go in Sullivan. with somebody? 
Yeah, with Roger Sullivan. Overton and Sullivan were up for it. And uh, so were Franken and Davis. I see. I see. I see. Interesting. Okay. And, uh, you know, they had a great, those guys had a fantastic run. And one of them took it to the United States Capitol. Can you believe it? And um, uh, when was the second uh, audition? uh, When it was uh, uh, with uh, 1980 and uh, Charlie Rocket got it. And it was me and down to me and Charlie Rocket. Okay. Well, I mean, that's the Gene Dumanian year, right? That was Gene Dumanian. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that might've been a bullet dodge, Rick, right? You understand that in hindsight now, right? Like you look at the 1980 season, which you don't find online anywhere. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I don't think. And there's some funny moments on that. There are some funny moments. They got some moments. I was, you know, I'm, I'm not talking. I was still trying to get in, but uh, I'm not talking smack. I wasn't. It wasn't the same feel like, you know, 75 or whatever. Well, I, I always look at that, you know, like the Charlie Rocket story breaks my heart. He's the guy who yeah. famously said fuck on air and there, but for the who shot God, JR. So I. Yeah. It was who, a, yeah. Who the fuck shot me? He said. Yeah. Right up live with standing next to Charlene Tilton from Dallas and it killed. And he not only got fired they fired a bunch of people for him cursing. Like, like half the cast got shit canned and they kept Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo and the rest is uh, Dick Ebersol. But I, I look at that and I go, yeah, that absolutely could have been me. That's why I've never, I, I just, I, that pressure cooker, <laughs> that pressure cooker of, because I came out of improv and I came out of comedy and there was always like, well, obviously you're going to want to try to be on SNL. I'm like, I think it would break me. I got to tell you, I'm going to try to get work <laughs> in sitcoms, but I just, I just, I, I know my limits, man, you know? And I, and <laughs> I, I honestly, I, I just don't think I, I'm cut out for it. And, and, you know, it's, it's such a, a, a sad story, but you look, in hindsight at the other people, and I'm not going to name any other names, but the other people who who got on that year and you've had an amazing, vibrant career with a uh, great, a great bunch of film and a great bunch of TV and, and totally. iconic work all over the place. Lucky um, break. And and sometimes the the roles we we don't get we don't get for a reason. I is is the the endless, the oft repeated lesson. Well, often uh you- I would look back at the motivators for things in my life. And I came to realize, I think SNL was to be a gateway to film work. I mean, theoretically. Theoretically, I saw it as one of the ways for people to see uh, versatility on my behalf, because I'd have to be different people in different scenes. Sure. And uh, that's kind of a young way to look at it, but. I was able to get some of that even without that is the point. And yeah. so if you don't get your initial dream the way you pictured it initially in your head, doesn't mean that you don't, if you examine the motivators, get the ultimate goals of those dreams. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a terrific way to put it. And also, I mean, I'm a little bit of a nerd, but I'm going through the 80 cast list. And uh, yeah, I'm, I, I would rather have your career than a lot of the careers that came out of the 80 cast. And I'm done, talk- <laughs> and I'm done talking shit. I'm done. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's talk about really, let's keep going. You have this incredible knack for being in these wild ass ensembles and even in stuff that doesn't necessarily work, which takes us to The Edge. Tell us about the TV show, The Edge. Well, I was having the time of my life being different people, different characters, getting makeup. It was 
uh, Dave Merkin was working his knuckles to the bone on that keyboard, rewriting and adjusting things and running down to the set. He's wearing his sneakers out. The sketches were shooting a company B camera over here because it was a very expensive sketch show. Yeah. Every single moment is a complete set redress. And a, and a short, and they're basically, a lot of them are short films, essentially. They're not shot on like single use stages. The no, way yeah. SNL is or the yeah. way Fridays was. It, yeah. it is, uh, it's, they were, there were locations and stuff. There was, yes. and tell us a little bit Julie about the- Brown, uh, Julie yeah. Brown was uh, sort of keeping the, the, the happy, let's, let's have fun doing this vibe going because it was a mad pace and it had to be, because you see the way that thing is cut. Yeah. It's yeah. cut like, like a, a Plimpton cartoon, you know, that, that threaded it all together. Right. Right, and, and everything looks a little weird and trippy and different. And well, it was it, sort of it was sort of sketch the comedy of for the, that show. Go ahead. The dream of doing that show ran up against the reality of how that works. The way you see it cut in your head to how many times can we, you know, jump, jump, jump back and forth, and can we ever reuse any of this stuff? Mm. So we can go back to it. So some of the sketches with the family with the guns and stuff, right. they had to call it back because. If it's popular, that's great. But also, you just got to reuse it. You can't keep just building a new set. Star Trek knew that, you know? Let them argue in the hallway. <laughs> Let them go back to that cave. That thing, yeah. We <laughs> it could be a cave. different color, but it should Come be on. the same cave. Um, well, so it's yeah. a sketch comedy show that is clearly in, it's the first sort of post-MTV sketch comedy show in the way it's cut. Yeah, it, it's 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 got this very. Um, uh, did you do any of it in front of a, a studio audience? It was um, no, no. It was no, all it, yeah. It's, it called, sounded uh, like for you guys laughter, at home. Yeah, a lot of sitcoms for you folks at home are really block and shoot, and there's nobody there. Yeah, it's still four cam, and it's still laid out like that. But it's so complicated, and the audience will have to sit through so many resets that they won't laugh, and it wasn't worth bringing them in. It's you can hear, you know, the trained ear can hear the difference between an actual studio audience and 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 a laugh track. But I and I was listening I, to it and I was like, I don't think there's actually people in that room. But um, well, you, you miss the one big element is when the writers are in the audience going, ah, ah <laughs> laughing the lines. loudest <laughs> at their own jokes. So their yeah. own jokes will will yeah. stay in. But the cast is you, Alan Ruck, Jennifer Aniston, um, Tom Kenny, and Jill Talley. Uh Wayne I mean, Knight. Wayne, Wayne Knight. Knight. That's God. Wayne Knight, who is, who is not yet doing. He's not yet Newman on Seinfeld, or he's uh, not. It's overlapping. He's verging. He's verging. He's on the cusp of Newman. Wow. The Newman cusp. The Newman cusp. Um, it is. It's an insane. It's Murderers Row. That cast. It's really, really a lot of very, very good people from all over the place, and. And there's delightful moments and there's darkness throughout. There's a real, like, like a there's a death. running gag where a lot, lot of, of death. death. There's a running gag where the whole cast dies every, uh, every episode. I beg your pardon. Uh, I believe we know that the homecoming queen has a what? Homecoming queen has a gun. Yeah, that doesn't age too well. Um, the uh, I, I was I had that I have that EP by the song, way. Man. I have that EP. The, Julie Brown's dance. homecoming queen has a gun. It's actually that off dance. the. What is that? What is that album called? 
it's got that it's got earth girls are easy uh-huh um, i was it, in earth girls are easy that's right that's right um, i have my longest is, hair. you'll see me i have a couple of parts of my longest hair i've ever had that's one of them and the other one is million dollar mystery okay the film that closed the laurentis's doors <laughs> well done <laughs> well done um uh earth girls are easy had to be a crazy thing because who are the three aliens in that movie rick well, that would be Jim Carrey and, uh, ah, 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 let me think, ah, uh, ah, ah, yeah, yes, yes, ah, ah, yes. Jeff Goldblum. Ah, ah. Uh, and I do <laughs> not want to hear, I do not want to hear your Damon Wayans. Stop right now. Stop. Damon right. Wayans, yes, yeah. don't, don't. My, my Damon Wayans is, uh, I, I, I was at the, I auditioned for one of those guys. Oh, really? I can't dance like those guys. I look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> this is the thing, you know, this is the thing that doesn't come up enough on this show, which is, and it happens to everybody it I've interviewed. Terrible. But that's fine. But look, but look, you ended up in the movie anyway. And this is a thing that people don't understand about the business. As rough as this business can be, uh, there is such a thing as a consolation booking. Well, they we, love, uh, they yeah. love. They, they love how funny I am on stage. And there must have been some place. A lot of times that gets a comedian apart in a movie. Yeah. A kill set and no necessarily demonstration of anything in between that that will be enough. It happens on occasion. But yeah. Julie knew me for ages. She knows I do characters and things like that. So put me in there and I'll sing along while I'm just lip syncing in the gymnasium number. Yeah. And that way I got to be in the in the movie. Well, it's a it's a trippy film because it's, you, a, it's a big budget, colorful musical in an area when they were simply not making musicals. The early 90s is a there's a there's just no musicals being made. I can't think of anything else from that era. I mean, it had been like four or five years since Little Shop of Horrors. Um which was a moderate success. And I'm trying to think of anything else from around that time with, you know, people singing original songs in a film and I'm drawing a blank. Rocky Horror was a few years before. Was 15 years before, dude. That's <laughs> a, that's a huge hike. Um, that, but yeah, it's 78, really, 78. Um, 75 respectfully funny. I think it's 75 I think it's 75 Rocky Horror um, All right. uh, somebody somebody is screaming somebody is sitting in their car screaming at their radio right now because um, they know the, <laughs> they know the correct date you we, we will get our texts don't worry we will I will I will be notified <laughs> mentioned Seinfeld we got to talk about a character who is both loved and hated within the same 22 minutes the Drake <laughs> um uh, the episode which I watched an hour ago is a uh, shout out to the uh, LA public library system by the way because it is in a streaming limbo as we record this it is not on Hulu and is not yet on Netflix so I went and got <laughs> the the DVDs mm. from the Silver Lake branch and um uh it's a 
Uh, one thing, fun side note, if you're a fan of character actors, you can watch two versions of the episode, one where John Randolph is George's dad and one where Jerry Stiller comes in and plays uh, yeah. Jerry's dad. The, the DVD offers you both options, which, uh, if you're me, is delightful. Um, but um, oh. so you play this pivotal character. It's the it's basically the beeline of the of the episode. The main episode is about them um, parking in a handicap spot and dealing with the, the consequences. And that one's pretty cut and dry. Don't park in a handicapped spot. But what I love about your storyline, it's what the show did the best was those kind of gray ethical areas. You know what I mean? A gift that they want to return for the money after their intentions were destroyed by seeing that we're not going to get engaged. And it was an engagement gift. And so the ethical battle of, well, if they broke the contract with us, it's okay for us to lie and pretend to be donation guys to get the TV back. Larry has a very almost shakespearean understanding of the bullshit psyche of man and and just like the constant moral quandaries that that <laughs> the average man faces on a daily <laughs> basis yeah. like you know what do you do when you get some the engagement <laughs> gift and the engagement doesn't last 24 hours what do you do if your father asks which of his three daughters loves him the most you know there's like it's That's all part of the masterpiece of it yeah <laughs> the really, abc stories are just all masterpieces they're yeah. all classics, you know, every it, one of them. Soup, not it doesn't matter, whoever, you know, they're, they're all so great. well structured and the Pirate way they shirt. all connect yeah. is is remarkable. And when the I ABC. when I first yeah, when I first started doing improv and I was specifically being trained in the Herald, and they always cited like, oh, well, a good Seinfeld is a Herald because all three storylines will come together, they'll just dovetail perfectly. And this is one of those episodes, um, as as um I think the polite term is problematic as the uh, A-line is now. Um, it's still, it's a, it's a Larry David. He's got his name on the episode. It's one that he, he wrote. And um, I know those things are, there's a lot of gang writing on sitcom, but it's clearly a Larry David idea because you can see the seeds yeah. of Curb Your Enthusiasm in it um, later on. What was that set like? You're four seasons in, the show has established itself. The, the rocky growing pains of its first season are in the past. What was that set like? The set was lovely. The set, and and look, I mean, Jerry knows me from stand-up. Yeah, of course. So I'm not just the actor playing the Drake. I'm because he used lots of stand-up buddies to be people. And by the way, there's a real Drake. Just oh, like there there's is? a real, there's a you know, there's a real Kramer. Everybody I, knows that. I part. live two blocks away from the real Kramer from when I was Kenny, yeah. up in New York. Yeah, yeah. And so there's also there's. Uh, a, a real uh, Joe Davola, you know, I mean, yeah. he's just busted Joe's balls. <laughs> I go, make right, this right. guy into you. Why? <laughs> you know? And so <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I had a great time and I added the crying because I thought, so this is where improv can be helpful. If you're going to help the scene and everybody's going, yeah, but that just makes it about you the whole time. Unless they can be made so unbelievably, we got to get the. It fuck gives out them of so here. much to play with. It That's gives them so to much to react to. Because yeah. I, I understand the argument, that, like don't center yourself in that scene, but you don't. You give them this incredible gift of like, holy shit, we really can't take this TV back. This guy's an emotional wreck. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, and and they're getting all the laughs because what I'm doing gets reaction laughs, not what I'm doing. My part, right. you get a little bit of a laugh. No, you, you, know, you it's get, hard you're, to laugh you're, at crying. 
you know, what you're like doing is, but you're crying is so hysterical. And especially since you're the guy who did the dumping, it's hilarious that you're the one who's falling apart. So don't sell yourself short. You are getting laughs in that scene, but it's, but it is the, the reaction of Jerry and yeah. Lane just watching, like, just and like, she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> and it's, it's gorgeous. It's so my good. laugh. My laugh in there comes up and I'm like, Liza Gagliano's is pretty good. I've heard they're good. You know, <laughs> yes, exactly. While crying, when, doing something normal while crying is always fun. when you're but, when uh, you're recommending the Italian restaurant. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For them to Gagliano's. Eat. <laughs> um, it's such a. It, I mean, it's one. It's so funny. I I didn't realize it's it's one scene, but it's such a, a historic episode. And hate the Drake, love the Drake is such a such a part of that show's lingua franca that. It, it, it's one of those things like when you find out the Olympic diner on the first SNL was only done twice and you're like, yeah, it's impossible. It's huge. It's iconic. But you've just got that one scene that sets the tone for everything before and after it. It's so exciting. Right. Yeah. It's so exciting to watch. So let's talk a little bit about, you've mentioned sellers. We're talking about your ability to, to walk into something and set a plot in motion or set a, um, set a a moment in motion who were some of your favorite character actors when you were coming up watching tv aside from sellers and winters and i mean sellers graduated from character to leading man but um but was always sort of like a, a in the gray area between the two who were some guys you loved growing up well dick van dyke oh yeah i think just as a life model dick van dyke yeah his book keep moving yeah is- he is living testament to that that book's accuracy. Yeah. Um, I loved uh, the whole cast of the Dick Van Dyke show. I loved. I also loved this character actor, Bradford Dillman. Oh yeah, yeah. A I'm a solid, episodic king. And you really you want to set some goals for yourself. You can say, "Oh, well, I just want to go at stardom or nothing." But some of these cats out there, they made a great living and you'd see them in Westerns. You'd see them in spy adventures, science fiction, uh, uh, love dramas, uh, you name it, man. They give him the works. And I feel like he was he was like one of the last contract players. Yeah. And Isn't which that was, a thing, man? You, go, oh, just, man. you, know, you know, they'll be there for you. you know? We would have killed in that era. Now, uh, take they, the take yeah. the exploitation aside for a moment. Yeah. We would have, I would have been shot by Bogart once a week. <laughs> That's right, man. I would have a been pa- a beta male patsy like me. Oh my yeah. god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would have had the I would have had the Marx Brothers frustrating me and running circles <laughs> around me while I make the face. You know. Oh my god! I would have been such such like black hat fodder on every western, you know. I, completely dead by the first reel. Back to my bungalow, you know. <laughs> trying opium, and just doing my thing. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks guys. See you next week. <laughs> Are we up at the ranch this week? Oh, that's exciting. All right, oh, I'll bring good. the kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> um, uh, Bradford Dillman is a, is a great. He is he is worth a Google. That is some amazing amazing stuff yeah, in there. I, I've man, got his resume in front so of me. So much now. work, so much work, and and, and work. Not look at what not stardom can still provide. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, and I and it's such a great goal to be like. If you want to be famous, then try. It'll it'll it very well. You know, won't work out, or it will not be what you expected to be. But if you want to work steadily. Try that. See if yeah, that man. makes you happy. You know, I studied for a long time with several uh, teachers uh, who expressed that you 
it doesn't have to be stardom. For it to you be mean, good. Do you mean actual conventional acting scene study teachers? Uh, Brian Reese was, okay. I think, the, the major proponent of the philosophy. He okay. would tell me, he would tell the class, and I, he, tell, he taught me how to taught, teach in the class, but to encourage that you can have a great career without it being a stardom career. Mm-hmm. And still, you'll get your pension, you'll, you know, whatever it is, man, you know, and you'll get some modicum of that initial dream of yours done. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll work with great people and you'll have your dental covered. And it's, 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 it's not a bad life. Well, oh, hopefully. Absolutely. Yeah. If they don't yeah, pull hopefully. it. $35,000 of new income a year. Jesus Christ. Hold. That's a whole other conversation. Um, uh, I want to, I don't want to, I want to keep you too much longer, but I want to talk about a a really interesting recent credit, um, which was I'm dying up here. Yes. The the Showtime show where you played the gatekeeper at Carson's tonight show. Right. Um, Now I beg me, I should have, I should have this in my homework and I don't, I apologize. Did you, did you ever do Carson? I did Joan Rivers's last hosting show oh, on wow. the Tonight Show when she had the fight with Johnny. Right, yeah. And because so I once got, she got her own show, uh, yeah, they caught were... a half hour into Johnny's time, right? And it was yeah, over and... on the other network. So they were very uh, felt betrayed by that. But it's out of her hands. Joan doesn't control that part. So, they, you know, she she got can't really tell railroaded. the network what to do and not she to do that. She got really way. railroaded with that. She got railroaded with it. It's not, it wasn't fair the way she said. She fought for me to get on that show. But oh, they wow. associated me with her afterwards. And you know what? If I have to go down fighting, I go down with Joan fighting. Yeah, that's beautiful I to fight hear. For, I fight with Joan. That is beautiful to hear. No, she was the, uh, as much of an icon as she was, she never stopped being an underdog. And um, No, and a, and a fighter against the real structure of, of what's wrong. You know, she was always a morally centered person, no matter how harsh some of the jokes would be that what drove them was there's still a, a good person in there yeah yeah that was famously so famously so yeah um, she's one of the good guys yeah i heard that from a few people so what was it like working on a show shooting in the 20 teens set in 1973 and that's that's before your time before you're really cutting it out in the uh before you're in the the trenches of the comedy scene where you're like i was in comedy you were in comedy by then okay but were you in new york or you in la i was in new jersey and new york i was starting to uh make my way into new york so what is that characterizing i was yeah i i was just scouting with roger sullivan we became a team when we went to the watkins Glen rock concert and we started riffing in between bands setting up and we did a bit that a group of people watched and so we said, hey, man, we gotta, maybe we got to do this. And so we decided to be a team at Watkins Glen. My God. And a slightly altered state. Yeah. What? Yeah. Who were the, who were the bands? Uh, the band. It was the band setting oh, up. Oh, the band. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> um, That's what uh, I'm trying to do. Lou, pay the nice man. But, I'm, but, but the band is on first. <laughs> have you ever seen, and I will, we will cut this, but have you ever seen the rock version of that sketch that the, uh, the credibility Yeah, the Who's did? on first. Yes, I've yeah. seen the Who's on first. Yeah. yeah. who's on third no guess who what Um, it's so good exhausting but it's so good it's so lovely um finally crafted um so talk to me a little bit about about um playing uh, here yeah what was that like bombardier Uh, i was a sort of a 
cross between he's a composite character right he's yeah, guy. Freddy, yeah. there's a lot of freddie in there and that's why he has this sort of i was in radio for a while and i was in this entertainment business so i know what you kids are going through and i see he's not remotely in touch with what modern comedy is about at all you know i can remember when jack benny could get a laugh just staring at you <laughs> And so uh, there was a great chance to show all these comedians being brilliant actors. Brad Garrett made me cry. Judy Gold brought tears out of my eyes. Kathy Ladman just marvels me when she's working. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Andy Santino, fantastic. Oh, he's great in it. He's great in oh, it. Oh, he's Santino's a great Santino's great in it, man. yeah. You know, uh, um, Al Madrigal hilarious but also when it comes down to the serious shit he's got the chop man dom herrera incredible dom is is terrifyingly good i didn't even recognize him in that i I saw it it was like and it's almost like it borders on self-parody like he's playing this incredibly old bitter comic and i was like this is interesting but what was it did you find yourself acting as a almost a consultant uh a de facto consultant on set uh only de facto one that i would keep saying this is really close Okay. <laughs> this man, you know. <laughs> wow, was it was it emotional? Is, uh, I guess that's my question. Was it kind of emotional watching stuff like that? It was uh, often. Those terrible colors, those mustard colors, would fuck me up and make me cry. Oh my god! Everything. Look at brown. that! Oh, look at that horrible carpet! Oh man! Everything was brown. Those shaggy brown things. Oh. I have like I have the haziest memories of of because I'm born in '71, so I I I'm, that isn't my era per se, but it's all some sort of like mustard yellow blur for the first seven <laughs> or eight years of my life, and then yeah. and then everything my life out. was a van interior. <laughs> my life was a shag van interior for the first nine years or so yeah, and then it became then it became a, a pastel popped collar <laughs> rick overton I, I i can't thank you enough for taking the time it is always such a delight to talk to you um thank you and and, and i want to tell the guys about my comedy special please do hit it yes i have a comedy special that's uh completely improvised and it's on, uh, you can see it on Hulu, but you can also see it on Prime and you can rent it on YouTube and ComedyDynamics.com. It's called Rick Overton's Set List Special. It's playing the game Set List where they project the suggestions behind you. You turn cold, face the cold audience and talk like it's been your act the entire time. And you improvise and the people play that game Set List all around the country, but I decided I'd turn it into a one hour special. You've asked me to do this show, and I stopped calling you. I uh, I 100 uh, chickened out, and um, the, uh, and, and now there's a pandemic, so I have an out just kind of built yeah, yeah. in. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not up to me. If it's up to me, Rick, I what can I do? What can I do? What is it going to take? What'll it take for me to get you into that car on stage? <laughs> you know what i have nothing to lose anymore uh you you'll you'll hear from me sooner rather you're than gonna later. do it you're gonna do it rick overton you're a national fucking treasure thanks for talking with us oh john thank you so much uh, let's do this again thank you so much and that is an episode wrap on rick overton you can follow rick on twitter at rick overton forever
Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? <laughs> <laughs>